The second car that I ever had, I've told you about my first car a bunch of times. The second car I ever had was a 1981 Toyota Corolla. The only bad part of that, it wasn't 1981 when I got it. So you can imagine by the time I got it, you know, uh, it was it was in pretty rough shape. I only had the car for six months because I totaled it. Um, now, I was just starting college and um, I was working as a delivery guy for the sub shop that was not that far from the school that I, the, the college I was going to. And so I was making a delivery um, to 1840 South uh, State Road 7. Now, when traumatic things happen, you tend to remember the address. So I'm, I'm driving down uh, State Road 7 and um, I'm in the middle lane and I, my mind was just somewhere else. And then I realized the car, the, uh, the, the parking lot I needed to enter was on the right. I was in the middle lane and I thought I had this great idea. And that was, why don't I just turn from the middle lane and I'll just go right in there, which is a great idea, except there was a blue Datsun in between the middle lane and that parking lot, which hit me right on the side of, of the car. And um, it, it was uh, I, I was convinced at that moment I was going to die because um, I was I was, you know, I had all this food in the passenger seat that I was delivering. And then the car hit me on the passenger side and the, the bumper was literally on the passenger seat when it because it crushed the door. You know, food was flying everywhere. That was like the weird part of the whole thing. My car was spinning. There was like subs that were all over the place. You know, you haven't really lived until you've seen a meatball sub explode. Um, and so anyway, there's all this stuff. And I thought this is it. And then right when the car kind of stopped moving, the only reason I knew that I had survived it was because somebody had ordered an orange soda from the fountain and the orange soda just splashed me on my face. That's how I knew I had lived. I've always had a special connection with Sunkist ever since that day. Um, but, you know, the thing is this, is that life, trying to get from here to there, there's a lot of times some obstacles, maybe even some crashes along the way. And sometimes here's what I, I believe happens with some of us is that because we're Christians, many of us are, we think that it should always be smooth sailing. I mean, you know, we're Christians, we love God, God's given us a vision for what He wants to do. I mean, so shouldn't it be easy? And then it's, it's, almost, like, it's almost weird when it's not. Because one of the things that we love, we love when we feel like the wind at our back. You know, it's like we've hoisted the sail, the wind's at our back, everything is easy, and we think, yeah, this is kind of, we're just in the flow of what God is doing. And then there's this other time when uh, things are difficult, the wind is at our face, and when things that should be easy seem difficult, and when everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And, and that's the challenge, and it's in those moments when the, the crash comes, when the obstacle happens, that we just want to give up. And yet what sometimes we don't realize is that it's in those moments that God is forging something in us. There's a person that God is creating that's, that's different, that's actually going to be able to handle the vision when it becomes a reality. There's something that happens in, in those moments of opposition when God is forging a person that is going to not just handle it when we get there, but is actually going to be able to become the kind of person that can actually reach the goal that we, that we set out. You see, the, the Apostle Peter would say it this way. I put it in your notes. This is out of the message, paraphrased, but I love how it says it. It says, friends, when life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. Instead, be glad that you are in the very thick of what Christ experienced. This is a spiritual refining process with glory just around the corner. You see, all of us, if we have a God-given vision that we're pursuing, all of us are going to face some kind of opposition, 
some kind of persecution, some kind of problem, some kind of challenge. But what we have to decide is, is the vision that we're going for worth and worthy of the work? In our story in Nehemiah, what we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks, and this is week three in a series that we started, everything's been going well for Nehemiah. I mean, God has given him a vision. He's presented the vision to the king that he was working for. The king gave him all the supplies to be able to do the work. The king gave him letters so that he would have safe passage from Persia to Jerusalem. He's communicated a vision to the people. The people have said together in unison, let us rise up and build. So everything has been smooth sailing. Everything is the wind at their back and it's, it's been really easy. But now is when the work begins. Now is when things get more challenging, when things get tougher. And now is when you're going to find out the kind of man that Nehemiah is. Is when the challenge comes, when the crash takes place. You see, because if God has given us a vision worth pursuing, then there's going to be some opposition along the way. There's going to be what I like to call the vision killers. The, the things that want to come into our lives and just wipe out the vision, take away the vision, cause us to now say, you know what, it's just not worth it to do it and I'm giving up. And what I want us to note in, in these verses that we're going to cover is how masterfully Nehemiah handles the vision killers. He, and we're going to identify three vision killers that try to come in and just wipe us out and derail us from what God wants us to do. And listen, if we will handle it the way that Nehemiah did, there is really no stopping what God can do in us and through us. So I want you to open with me to the book of Nehemiah chapter 3, because that's where we're going to begin. We're going to read the first couple of verses. It says this, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren the priests and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built. And next to them... Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Also, the sons of Hananah, or Hassanah, built the fish gate, and they laid its beams and hung its doors with bolts and bars. And next to him, Merimoth, the son of Arijah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshes, whatever that guy's name is, uh, made, repair, <laughs> made repairs. I, wish, I just wish for one reason, one to be like, you know, and then Jim, uh, you know, like seriously. Uh, these people had way too much time on their hands to come up with names. Uh, then next to them, Zadok, the son of Banam, made repairs. And here's the key, verse 5. It says, next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, um, here, here, there's three vision killers that we're going to look at. Here's the first one, if you're taking note. That is, don't delay in getting started. Don't delay in getting started. You see, we talked about this a little bit last time, that there's a difference between dreams and vision. Dreams are, hey, I have an idea. Hey, there's something I'd like to do. Wouldn't this be a cool thing if we did it? But vision is a dream with a deadline. Because a lot of times what happens is we'll have an idea and then we'll just kind of say, well, I'm sure it's going to happen at some point. But see, the thing about a dream, if we want to see it accomplished, is we've got to kind of, got to kind of wake up from it and then turn that dream into vision when we're awake and see that then become a reality. When I was in the 12th grade, um, English was the last class of the day for me. This is back a million years ago when there were actually seven classes you had to go to uh, through the course of the day. And so because it was the last class of the day, I mean, it was almost two o'clock, um, I'd occasionally take a nap because it was, I was, now you gotta understand, um, 
I, I, the first thing is I was in a band. And so I, almost every night of the week, we were either rehearsing or playing shows. So I was on a good night getting home and going to sleep at about 1 a.m. Usually it was closer to 2 or 3 a.m. So I was, um, I was waking up for school on like three hours of sleep and just barely making it. So by 2 in the afternoon, I mean, I was totally wiped out. The other thing is, is I'm an extremely heavy sleeper. So like right now, my kids in the middle of the night will climb on top of me to get into bed with, with my wife and I. They'll cry in the middle of the night if they're sick. They'll wake up, like they'll fall asleep on top of me, turn the TV on, have conversations with each other, and I won't wake up. My wife will say, I didn't sleep at all. I'm going to say, what happened? You know, and she'll tell me all this, you know, there was a fire, you know, whatever. I don't even know anything about it. And so, so one day I'm in English class. And um, I was so exhausted. And, and you know how you, sometimes you fall asleep? I, I think all of us fall, fell asleep in school at one point in time. But you know like when you really fall asleep? Not like, oh, I kind of dozed off. I mean like your head is on the, on the desk and there's a drool, big puddle of drool. That kind of fall asleep, all right? Now, I fell asleep one day, last class of the day. And when I woke up, there was no one in the classroom this day that I'm talking about. And there was nobody there. In fact, I looked and school had ended 20 minutes before. The bell rang, and you know how loud and annoying the bell ring is at, at school. The, the bell rang, everybody got up and walked out. The teacher even got up and walked out and left me asleep. And I mean, I was like, you know, totally out, you know. And, um, and, and listen, because and my friend, I had, I had several friends in the class, and they looked and were like, wouldn't it be hilarious if we just let Bob left him here, and just sleeping? Now, this is part of why I had problems in life, is because of these friends that I had. I needed to get rid of them and get some new ones. Uh, but this is part of the issue, right? A lot of times, you know, because my thing was, I'm dying to get out of school. Now, I'm asleep and I can't leave school because I'm actually asleep in school. And this is part of what happens. Is a lot of times we have these dreams, but we won't turn them into a reality because we've got to wake up. We've got to wake up, we've got to pick up the pencil, and we've got to do something. Now, here's what, here's what the Bible says, and some of the reason why many times we won't you know, really get going and turn a dream into a vision and turn that vision into reality. And it's, it's what he says in, in, in Proverbs 22. It says, the lazy man says, there's a lion outside and I'll be slain in the streets. I don't know if there's ever been a lamer excuse than that. Hey, you're going to go get a job. Listen, let's relax. There could be wild animals outside and I could be mauled by them because I don't know what you think about ancient culture but there weren't like grizzly bears walking around everywhere you know and this is just like the, the worst of all excuses but the key is the reason that vision gets wiped out is because we won't we delay in getting started in contrast to that Eliashib who was the high priest didn't wait for anybody to tell him to do it the, Nehemiah says here's the plan and he just gets going and the thing that, that's so important to note, and one of the things that these few verses are, are contrasting for us, is Eliashib, the high priest and the leaders of Israel, contrasted with the nobles of this area called Tekoa that we're going to look at in just a moment. And, and the thing is this, is that they start working and they rebuild a whole section. In fact, if you can see this, um, you'll see this, uh, this area. This is the Temple Mount, and this is where they begin, at the Sheep Gate. And then, uh, if you're looking over here, the Sheep Gate is right here, and they build all the way to the, ter the Tower of Hananel. So they build this whole section of rebuilding the Temple Mount. Now, those of you that are, like, you've seen, oh, is that like the Western Wall? And you want to figure that out. The Western Wall is actually right here. And then, if you know a little bit more about Israel, what are called the Rabbi's Tunnels, those are actually right here. But this, whole, this area is like, if you see pictures of the Western Wall, that's it. They're building the northern area of the, uh, if you 
this right there. If you're building this northern area of the Temple Mount and they're just going for it and doing it. And, and now, but in verse five, the thing that I find so interesting is that these nobles of this area called Tekoa, they wouldn't do it. Now, we see this other map that I have up for you. This is Jerusalem. OK, Tekoa is about 10 miles south of Jerusalem, right about here. So Tekoa is an area that really would have benefited from a Jerusalem that was strong. They would have benefited not only from worship in the temple, they would have benefited with commerce, they would have benefited with business and all that, jobs. It really would have been a good thing for them. But then, what we don't know is it says they just wouldn't do it. They wouldn't put their shoulder into the work of the Lord. And that actually gives us a hint as to why they wouldn't work. Because literally that was a um, kind of an expression at that time, which means to put your shoulder into the work of the Lord or into the work of so-and-so really meant that they would be in service of another person. And these leaders didn't think that they should be in service to another person. I mean, they were leaders, so why should they have to serve? And instead, they were used to being served and couldn't bring themselves to serving someone else. Instead, what they wanted to do was kind of sit back and philosophize as to why what Nehemiah was doing wasn't going to work. And so, um, you know, but, but let me just tell you that one of the biggest vision killers is laziness. It's laziness when, when you just God has given you a vision and then we just delay in getting it started. And we'll delay for doing all kinds of things. I mean, guys, can I tell you this? I'm, I'm going to pick on the guys for a few minutes. Um, guys, and you know that I talk to you about this sometimes. But listen. You've just got to lay off the video games, right? I'm, I'm telling you, I, I, I read studies all the time, and because people know that I love to get on guys about playing video games, they email me reports that come out, which just get me even more fired up about it. Um, but, like, you know, I, I, I read about anywhere from 125 to 150 books in a year. And there's, I've never read a biography of a person's life that, that goes something like this. The guy, you know, goes to school, he does well, he goes to college, he graduates. And then there's this next chapter where he says, then I took six months off to master Super Mario Brothers. Then the next chapter is, and then let me tell you the story of how I was elected to the U.S. Congress. Right? There's, there's never that connection. Right? There, you know, there, there's never a story of, of a woman who falls in love with a man. Well, what made you fall in love with him? Well, you know, I just saw his Donkey Kong skills and I was just really impressed. Right? You know, I knew that he was the man for me. You know, when I saw the way he was able to jump over those barrels that were coming, I knew that this was a man with skills, right? The issue is this. You've, listen, if God has given you a vision, you've got to put down the controller and get to work. Don't wait for somebody else to motivate you. A lot of times, listen, I'll talk to guys and be like, oh, you know, I feel like God's given me something to do. I just got to, I just got to find the motivation to do it. Listen. If God, if, if the fact that God has given you something to do doesn't motivate you, nothing else is going to. No pep talk, no speech, no motivational tape or message or whatever is, is, is going to do it. And here's one of the things that's so important, guys, is, is that um, because our work and our work ethic is speaking of our faith. Listen to what Paul says. It's a really strong verse. But it says this in 1 Timothy chapter 5. It says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You see, the guy that just continually says, tomorrow I'll get started, doesn't really have a vision. And the truth is, is that God wants to give us a vision. Give us a vision for our family, for our career, for our kids, for our marriage, for our future. But listen, he never gives us a vision for the purpose of entertaining us. And saying, boy, what if? 
No, he gives us a vision for the purpose of motivating us and challenging us to change and go and to go after it. Well, the rest of chapter three is a list of every person in the section that they work on the wall. And the thing that Nehemiah does, which I love, is that um, he gives everyone this the, the best motivation, which is wherever you lived in the city of Jerusalem, you worked on the area that was the closest to your house. So the priests, they worked on the area of the temple. Every person that the, the closer that you were to one area of the temple, that's the area that you worked on. But then this is where now the work is going and the work is going well. But look at what happens in chapter four and verse one. In, in this, look at what it says. It says, and so it happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And here's Nehemiah's response. Here, O our God, for we are despised and, and turn their reproach on their own heads. And give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity. Do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall. And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the wall of Jerusalem was being destroyed and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the second point that's important, the second vision killer, and that is to, and that is don't listen to the naysayers. Don't listen to the naysayers, because whenever you're doing something great, there will be people who come into your life that are going to tell you why it can't be done and why you can't be the one to do it. Now, listen, I, I don't tell this story very often. In fact, I don't even know if I've ever told this story, because I just know that not only do a lot of people attend here, but a lot of people, lots of people listen online. But I'm going to tell you this a story I don't tell very often, if ever. And that is when my wife and I announced that we were coming to start this church. We were leaving our positions and, and where we were in ministry and we were going to start our church here. There were so many people who were incredibly supportive of us and we're so thankful for them that encouraged us and shared, you know, just encouraging words with us and all that. But there were a few naysayers, people who said it couldn't be done, people who told us, you know, all the stats about this area and that no church ever really does well, uh, like in this area or Miami or whatever, that this is like a graveyard for people that want to start churches and, you know, because that's the way you want to build them up you know, is, is telling that you're going to essentially a graveyard. Um, and, but one guy in particular sat me down and told me, and, uh, and, and I will admit I was young, I was 26, um, and, and he told me that I was too young, I was too inexperienced, and I didn't have the skills necessary not only to start a church but to be a senior pastor, and that I probably needed another five years um, to be, before being able uh, to, to get the training to, to be able to do it. And um, I listened to him. And I said, well, I appreciate you saying that, but, you know, the, the people that, that I uh, love and respect the most I've talked to, and they've all said that, 
they believe this is the time. They believe that this is the area and that, you know, that I'm the guy to, to go. And by the way, I think that's a, just as a sidebar, that's a good rule. If you want to get counsel from people, the people that know you best and the people who love you most. Those are the people you want to listen to, those who know you best and those who love you most. Those are the ones you want to listen to. Well, anyway, um, you know, and I said, listen, the people that know me best and love me most are affirming this all along the way. And, um, and he huffed and puffed and told me I was going to fail and said, listen, if in five years you've gathered 50 people into a church, I'd be shocked. And because uh, he just really wanted to send me off with a real good one. Um, well, fast forward a few years and I'm teaching at a, at a pastor's conference um, and at that time, people started to call and they said, hey, we want you to come and tell the story of Calvary and what God has done and all that. And, uh, and at this point, Calvary's doing really well and lots of people are showing up. Lots of people are, are coming to know Jesus. And, um, and this guy walks up to me and I hadn't seen him in a long time. He walks up to me and he says, Bob, can we talk for a few minutes? So we kind of like walked to a more secluded area. And, and, um, and he said, hey, I, I need to apologize to you. And uh, he said, do you remember what I said to you a few years ago when you were coming to start Calvary? And I said, well, you tend to not forget conversations like that. Um, and I said, yeah, I do. And he said, listen, um, I just want you to know that I was wrong. Uh, I said all of those things because I wanted to discourage you from going because I really wanted you to come and work for me. And um, I want you to know that that was just a just the wrong thing for me to do, and, and I'm really sorry. And uh, that's when I pounced on him and bit his ear off. Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't, although that had just happened. Mike Tyson had just done that, and I thought, that's a good thing to do. Um, I mean, not to, anyway, to somebody else. Uh, but, but, you know, and it's a weird thing that happens that, uh, now I tell you this story for a couple of reasons. Number one, because there will always be naysayers. There's always going to be people who say that it cannot be done. The second thing is, is that naysayers will always have an ulterior motive. There's always going to be something in it for them for you to give up what it is that God has given for you to do. And this group that was giving Nehemiah trouble didn't want Jerusalem built up simply because a strong Jerusalem was a problem for them. Even though it was great for the city, it was what God wanted, it was a problem for them. Now, if, in fact, let me, if I can get that map up again. This is a city, this is a kind of ancient uh, Israel. This is the divided kingdom, Israel and Judah. You have um, Sanballat was the um, leader of a group called the Samaritans. The Samaritans were right here in uh, in what's called Samaria. Um, This is Now, because Jerusalem had been wiped out, Samaria really becomes the capital of that region. So this makes Sanballat a really, really influential person because everything is now going to Samaria, which had used to go to, uh, what had used to gone to Jerusalem. Um, Tobiah is an Ammonite. This area right here in this vomit color green, uh, which I don't even know who picks these colors for these maps, but this really nasty green color. Um, this is the kingdom of Ammon, which is like to the northeast of, of Israel, or northeast of Jerusalem. Now, there was an area here that was called the King's Highway. And every, kind of all, everything that was coming up through Egypt or Africa would come this way. And then as you came up, uh, you would go, you'd hit like Damascus, and then you could either hang a left and go to Asia, or you could, ha- uh, you could hang, I'm sorry, hang a right and go to Asia, or hang a left and go to all the way up to, um, you know, Eastern Europe and, uh, and, and beyond. And so, but when Jerusalem was strong, people would divert from there, and they would take what was called the Via Maris, or the Way of the Sea, and come through Jerusalem, and then make their way up to Damascus. And so, there was this whole issue of a trade route that really worked out well for Ammon, as opposed to going this other trade route that would work well for Jerusalem. 
And so their thing was, if Jerusalem gets built up, Samaria is not going to be the capital anymore. Ammon isn't going to be the, the, the tourist stop that it, that it is. And so we need to stop this from happening. And so they spoke evil of the work that Nehemiah was doing, not because it was bad, but because it simply didn't suit them. Because a strong Jerusalem, a strengthened Jerusalem, a Jerusalem with walls, didn't suit them. It didn't work to their motives. You see, the, the key, for my friends, is this, is that Sanballat and Tobiah, the Sanballat and Tobiahs of our lives, always seem like really loud voices. They do. And, and the reality is, is that sometimes it can be family members or friends that seem like the Sanballat and Tobiahs because you have a vision and, and they can be the voices that try to kill it. If for no other reason... Sometimes one of the things that I've seen is somebody has a great vision and they want to accomplish it and, and then they, there's family members or friends who want to shoot them down and it's like, and then you wonder why and it's because those people aren't doing anything and the thought of now you're going to do something and if you do something, it's going to make me feel bad for not doing anything. So now I guess I need to kind of rain on your parade so then we all kind of live in this place of mediocrity instead of going to where it is that God ultimately wants us to be. And see, now... The way that you can tell, because one of the things is, well, how do I know if somebody's either being constructive or they're just being like a sand ballot in my life? One of the ways that you can tell is that if a person is being constructive, number one, they're not going to condemn what you're doing. What they're going to do is in love, share with you. I see what you're trying to do. Have you thought about this? But the other thing that you're going to look at is, does that person, this naysayer, have something to lose by you doing what it is that you're doing? Because when someone doesn't want you to do something and their only reason is if you do that, it's going to have some kind of effect on me, you've got a sand ballot or Tobiah on, on your hands. And the way that Nehemiah combats this, and this is the thing that I love, is that he trusts God and he continues the work. And it's just this whole thing, this, this formula of trusting God and continuing the work. In fact, if you look um, in, in uh, verse 4, he says... You know, so we built the wall up to half its height because people had a mind, uh, they had a mind to work. He didn't try to stop and explain to Sanballat, well, this is why we're doing it. They didn't get a committee together. No, and said, here's what they did. They kept working and they weren't going to get derailed. Because, and this is the thing that's really important. They get the wall halfway built. And this is when the attacks come. And Nehemiah knew that, that it was, because they knew Nehemiah was serious. You see... If you're just sitting around at Starbucks philosophizing about how things need to change, that's fine. Nobody's going to make a big deal. You actually start doing something and making progress and building momentum. That's when you're going to see the naysayers come into your life. And so the, the good news is this. When the naysayers come out, it means that you're making progress and that, you know, because there's determination and passion and commitment to seeing God's vision become a reality. And that's the thing that makes them nervous. But the question is, once you start hearing about all this, then what do you do? Look at what happens in verse 10. It says this. It says, Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, We will neither know nor see anything until we come to their midst and kill them and cause their work to cease. And so it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore, I positioned men at the lower parts of the wall, at the openings and at the set of the people, and I set people according to their families with swords, with spears and bows. And I looked and, I, and arose 
And there were nobles, leaders, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them, he says. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. And fight for your brethren, your sons, daughters, wives, and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall and everyone to his work. And so it was from that time that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held spears, uh, shields, and bows, wore armor, and the leaders were all behind the house of Judah. And those who built the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other hand they held a weapon. And every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, The work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and our God will fight for us. And so we labored in the work. And half of the men held spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. And at the same time, I also said to the people, Let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem that they may be part of our guard at night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men uh, of the guard who followed me took off their clothes, except everyone uh, took them off for washing. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's, here's the third vision killer that we have to watch out for. And that is, don't lose sight of the goal. Don't lose sight of the goal. Um... When I was talking about falling asleep in, in high school, this was all part of a conversation that my wife and I were having the other day. And um, in, in the conversation that we were having, um, my wife and I were, ta- we were driving and we were talking about, I don't know if you're, some of you will remember this, the, um, when the grading system changed from, you know, it used to be 90 to 100 was an A, 80 to 89 was a B, and, and all that, and then, it, and then it changed, and then it was 94 to 100 was an A, and it was like 85 to 93 was a B and all that. And my wife was like, my, Carrie and I were talking. She's like, I was so mad when that happened. And I said, man, I, me too. I was furious. And, uh, and I said, so I said, what did you do about it at your school? Because we were both um, lived in the same city, but we went to different high schools. And I said, so what did you do? And, uh, you know, it, uh, because of this outrage. And she said, well, nothing. I just studied harder. Like, what did, what did you do? And I'm like, oh, I staged a protest. And, I, and I'm like, me and a bunch of other people, we staged a protest the day that it was going into effect. And at 10 a.m., everyone was going to stand up and walk out of class. And then we were going to meet at the, at the, at the uh, kind of the, the yard in the, in the front of the school. And then we didn't really think about what was going to happen after that. But we were going to at least a bunch of people be there and protest this corrupt system and kind of rage against the machine at that point. And, uh, and, and so we, and then what happens at 10 a.m., we did it, we stood up, we walked out, and then, I mean, there was like, I don't know, 100, 150 students out there. And, um, anyway, so we kind of got out there and we didn't really know what to do, so we all just left and ditched school for the rest of the day. And, uh, so the next, so <laughs> the next day, I come back to class, it was my English class, the one I was always falling asleep in. And, um, my teacher says, uh, he says, Bob, so where were you yesterday? And, uh, and I said, well, you know, and I give him this whole impassioned speech about, you know, a corrupt system and, you know, the, the grading system and all that stuff. And, and, and he says, Bob, uh, you have a 37% in my class. He says, you know, even if we lowered the grading system by 20 points, you'd still be failing. So I just don't understand the whole, like, this, this passion about, like, what are you trying to do here? 
And I'm like, I guess I'm really just trying to get out of class, I guess. You know, and, and now, now here's the thing. My, my wife sees the goal. They raise it. Here's the goal. Getting good grades. And that, that's, and, and I'm not losing sight of that. Me, I'm just, you know, I'm just finding a, you know, anytime I can rally some kind of opposition, that's kind of gets my, my, my goal. And, uh, but this, look at what happens in, in the rebuilding of the wall that, that, that can easily cause them to get derailed. Easily cause them to get derailed. They started looking at the problem. Once again, grades are changing all that. They start looking at the problem as opposed to here's the vision of what we're trying to do. They started focusing on, if, we remember, if you read those first few verses, Judah comes up and they say, do you know how hard this work is? Do you know what we've heard about our enemies who want to attack us? Do you know that we're all very, very tired because this has been going on for now about 26 days. About, they've been working for about a month on, on the wall. All day, all day and all night they've been working on the wall. And they begin making excuses about how it's not going to work. Now, I want to park here for a minute because I think there's something really, really important for us um, when it comes to just life in general and, and spiritual life that we can really grab hold of that I think is really important. Um, in your notes, you'll see what I wrote there for you. Three levels of mastering most things in life. This is not only true in, in just general things, but I believe this is also true when it comes to spiritual life as well. When we go from infancy to maturity, I'm going to give you all three and then I'm going to define them. Um, when it comes to these levels of mastering things, number one, there's information. There's the stage of information. Number two is there's a stage of repetition. And then number three, there's the stage of mastery. Information, repetition and mastery. Information is like the most exciting phase. Information is when you're hearing stuff for the first time. So if you're here and you have no idea about Nehemiah, a wall, no idea. This is you're in the information stage. This is very exciting. What's going to happen? Are Sanballat and Tobiah really going to get an army together? This is really riveting. You know what's going to happen here? Um, then you'll maybe read it a second time. You're still in that. You'll get some nuances maybe that you didn't get the first time. Um, and this is the part where you just keep hearing things you've never heard before. But then after a while, after a season of life, you enter the second stage, which is the stage of repetition. This is the stage that no one likes. This is the part where most people drop off. When I was in high school, one of the things that I used to do to make some extra money is I'd give guitar lessons. Um, and, <clears throat> and there would be people who, you know, and so I'd make, I'd have like my schedule and people would come over my house once a week and they'd pay me 10 bucks an hour to give them, to give them guitar lessons. And... Um, and now, when they were most excited and motivated is when things were brand new. And so I would be teaching them. I'd write out scales for them, major, minor, harmonic, all that, all different types of scales for them to learn. I'd teach them songs to play. So we'd listen to a song, and then I'd learn it, and then I'd teach it to them. And they were thrilled about that, very exciting. But then they'd say, like, I want to go to the next level. How do I go to the next level? And I would say, well, here's what you have to do. All those scales that I taught you, you need to play those day and night. And you need to play them over and over and over again to the point where you can just lay on your bed, close your eyes and just play scales top to bottom without even looking. And then you could just start in the middle of the scale and just play it and then start over. And just, and you just got to learn them over and over and over again. And then the songs, you got to be able to learn how to play the songs, not just like playing it, but you got to be able to just close your eyes, not even look at the guitar or the bass anymore and be able to play it. And well, then how does that happen? And I say, you have to do it over and over and over and over again. And this is the place where many people would stop. They'd get to a certain level of competence and then they would stop playing. Because they'd say, well, that's not really exciting anymore. I don't feel like I'm being taught anything new. 
Listen, in church world, let me tell you how that works. Where you come in and you hear, um, whether it's me or one of the other pastors talk, and it's, it's brand new, and you're like, oh, this is so exciting, I'm growing, I'm learning, this is awesome. And then a season of time comes where now it's a season of repetition in your life. And you're like, oh, I've heard that. Oh, I know that story. You know, he talks about David and Goliath. I get it. David kills Goliath every time I read it. And, and you know, and so you just, you're in the stage where it's like, I, I just, I've, I've heard it before, I've heard it before, I've heard it before. Now, I do this thing with my daughter. My daughter's four and a half. And one of the things I do with her is I start telling her a story that I know that she's heard before. But I'm trying to instill this in her. And so I'll tell her, I'll say, Mia, I've got to tell you a story. You've never heard this before. Really? Because she loves stories. And I'm like, let me tell you a story. There was this kid. His name was Dave. Dave was walking one day. He sees this humongous guy. He was a warrior. And she's like, oh, Bobby, I know this story. I know this story. Let me finish telling you. Okay. And then David goes into the valley, and then he takes one of his stones, and he kills Goliath, and that's the story. And I'm like, well, okay. So you've heard. She's like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. Tell me another story. I'm like, well, because she wants to hear new stories. And if I tell her stories she's already heard before, she doesn't want that. She wants, so she'll just finish telling the story real quick. And I'll say, okay, you want to hear, you know that story? All right, then let's do this. You tell me the story from the very beginning. The story of David and Goliath, you tell me from the very beginning. And, and if you can know it, you totally know it, then I'll tell you a different story. Okay, so there's this guy, David, and then he goes to fight Goliath. Whoa, 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 that's not where it starts. How does the story of David and Goliath start? Well, he goes, no, 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 that's not how it starts. It starts with a kid delivering cheese. What? Yeah. David's dad had made some lunches for his brothers who were fighting, and he said, I want you to bring these ten big things of cheese to your brother. So the story starts with cheese. Did you know the story started with cheese? No, Bobby. Okay. And then, we'll, and then I'll help her through the rest of the story. And then at the end, I'll tell her this is, my, this is my whole thing with her. I say, Mia, there's a difference between having heard a story before and knowing a story. Big difference. Oh, yeah, see, it's, it's the difference between, oh, I know a few notes to the song and I can play the song without the CD being on. And see, it's, and this is the same thing that happens uh, in, in church world. Say, well, oh, I've already heard that one before. You've heard it before. Have you ever tried to teach it to somebody else? No way. Well, why not? Because I've heard it before, but I don't really know it. Well, see, the only way that you really know it is by hearing it again and again and again. The same thing that happens, um, I, I talk to people that, you know, just around town, especially, this is true around Christmas and Easter. So I'll talk to someone, oh, they went to church on Easter. Hey, how'd it go? Oh, good, what'd your pastor talk about? Oh, I don't know, you know, like he died for you, something like that. And then, but if you tell them the story of the gospel, they're like, oh, yeah, I already know that. But, but then you ask them to recount the story, and they're not really sure. Why? Because there's a difference between having heard a story and knowing the story. And the problem is people never get past the point of repetition because to, to, to them the point of repetition seems kind of boring. Because what they want is something new and exciting, like the time of information. You see, this is also true when it comes to relationships. You, you know people that, um, and, and, and most of us know someone, that they, they start a relationship with someone and then um, it gets to a certain point, they implode the relationship and then they find someone else and start over. And then it's usually around the same amount of time, six, eight, nine months, that they implode the relationship and then start over. What happens? Because there comes a point in time when the relationship isn't brand new. Someone has told you all their stories, and now you've just got them, and you know all their stuff, and they all don't know your stuff, and now what do you do? Well, now the season of repetition is where the relationship gets deepened. 
The same thing is true in our relationship with God. We can hear, oh, but I've heard that over and over. Oh, I don't feel like I'm growing. Well, see, when you hear the story for the first time, the growth feels like it's enormous. It feels like you're just, man, it's so much to take in. Well, at some point in time, it, the, it, it's not like going from zero to ten. It's from going to ten to now like 10.5 to 11 to 11.2 to 11.7. And what's happening is is that you're growing, but the growth isn't at the same rate. But you know what happens is, is that now there's a story to tell. And you really, really know it. Because you're able to turn and say, to say, hey, this, this, I, I, I know it now. It's not that I just heard it. I really know it. I understand the, the intricacies in, of, of how it works. And that's really what ma- this third thing called mastery is all about. It's when we know the story inside and out. Can I ask you this? How many of you are married? Can I see that question? All right. Wow, a lot of you. Um, now, check this out. I, I know, because every couple has this, and every time that I've spent time with a couple, I've said, so how did you guys meet? Right? And let, let, me, let me guess, right? That the same way that it works in my relationship with my wife is the same way it works in yours. That every couple has, when they tell the story of how they met, there's parts that he tells, and then there's parts that she tells. And if you notice this, if you notice that when they do that, they don't actually see when they're first telling the story, like, no, 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 let me tell this part. I tell this part better. Right. That's kind of what they do. But after they've been married for a while, you know what they do? One person tells one part and then he stops. And then she starts to tell a part and then she stops. And it's almost like they're working in rhythm together because it's, and it's like this dance that they have where it's like I tell this part. She tells this part. He tells that part. I tell the other part. And why? Listen, that's mastery. That's through this course of repetition and telling the story over and over and over again. You go to the place of infancy to maturity. That's how it works in our relationship with God. Not that we just know the story or we've heard the story, but that we know the story that it's deepened into us. Because when you really know the story, um, spiritual maturity is really like knowing God's word so that it's like breathing. I mean, it just... It just, it comes into you, it goes out of you, it's almost effortless as to how it happens, right? You don't really think a lot about breathing, it just happens. And when you think about God's Word going into you and God's Word coming out of you, and it begins to influence what you say and what you do, and when you get to the point of mastery, you're not even really thinking anymore, well, how am I, well, is this exactly the way? No, 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 it's just coming in and it's going out and it's flowing through in a way that it's just, it takes time. But see, here's what will happen is that if we take our eye off the ball and we start focusing on all the other things, here's what we'll say. We'll say what these guys said. The work is too much. We're doing the same thing over and over and over again and there's opposition and there's problems in, 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 in all of these things. Listen, was it a lot of work? Yes. Was it tiresome? Yes. Was there an enemy? Yes. But listen, what's the alternative? Do nothing? Take it easy? Is that going to make Sanballat and Tobiah go away? No, they're still going to be there. They're still going to be oppressive. They're still going to be getting bullied. And the only thing that they can do is keep going. And that's why when, when they say, uh, when the people of Judah say, well, it's too much, we're tired, and all this rubble, and we've heard that people are going to attack us. Um, if you look at verse 14, here's what he says. He says, and so I, I looked and I arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to all the people, do not be afraid of them, but remember the Lord great and awesome. You see, the worst time in the, per- in the process of vision is the halfway point. This is the part where you're not really sure if it's coming together or coming apart. 
It's the time where you're giving maximum effort, but you don't have a lot to show for it yet. And this is where Nehemiah has to recast the vision and remind them this is why we're building the wall. And so he says to them, oh, he just says, remember the Lord. And this was about them remembering what God had already done. That God had brought them this far. That half the wall was actually rebuilt. And that they're building momentum, they're making progress, and their enemies are scared, which is why they're making threats. Remember the Lord is about remembering God's character and nature. It's about remembering what God has done in the past, and that the Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if God has done that in the past and He's been faithful, then God will be faithful in the present and in the future. So the question is, where are you? Are you in the place like where these guys are, where you're stuck, you're kind of halfway into the seeing the vision accomplished, and you're like, ah, oh, I just can, can I can I really get there? You see, some of us we really want to make our marriage work. You want to make your marriage work, and you have this vision of a happy family and and mom and dad and kids that are together, and you're making progress. But now you've hit some opposition. And here's what Nehemiah's counsel to you would be: Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your sons, your daughters, your spouses, and your homes. See, you're, you're looking at your career, and you're looking at, well, we're going to do this, and, and you're stuck, and you're saying, and you're thinking about giving up, and you're saying, well, man, what am, I, what am I doing here? You know, it's getting too hard to start that business. It's getting too hard to get the degree. It's getting too hard to get to the next level. And listen, remember the Lord, is what Nehemiah would say, and fight for it. Keep your eyes on, on God, on who He is and what He's done, because it's amazing what God can do with a heart that refuses to give up. You know, some of you might be here and you say, well, Pastor, what if I'm in this place? I'm unsure about my future. I'm not even in the halfway point of my vision. I'm not even sure what my vision is. And, and, I'm, and I'm feeling the, the temptation to now maybe create my own vision, go my own way because I don't feel like God has really shown up yet. And here's what Nehemiah's counsel would be to you. Remember the Lord and just wait a little bit longer. And realize that these refining moments in our lives are the moments where God is molding us and shaping us into the people who can actually catch a vision and go for it and actually succeed. And listen, this process of waiting and this process of refinement is one of the most important lessons that you will learn in spiritual life. And yet it was one of the most difficult to to learn. You see, so what do they do? They talk about, this is what we're going to do. Remember the Lord. And they continue in the work. In the life of Jesus, when they, you know, when Jesus had a mission, a vision of what the Father had given him to do. And yet there was seasons when everybody loved what Jesus was doing and they wanted to crown him and make him king. And there was other seasons when they actually didn't like what Jesus was doing and they wanted to kill him. And so there were these moments where they were either going to crown him or kill him, but they, they, everything was about doing something different than what the father wanted him to do. And that's why since the time that he was a boy, what did he say? I have to be about my father's business. In fact, that's why in the Gospel of John chapter 11, that when he knew his time had come, it says that he set his face towards Jerusalem. And he began the process that ultimately led him to the cross, to a grave, and to a resurrection three days later. My friends, does it get difficult? Is there going to be opposition? Yes. 
But there's no, nothing great is ever accomplished. That's easy. And yet here's what I know to be true, is that God's vision for your life is greater than any vision we could try to accomplish ourselves. And that God's desire for you to accomplish your vision for your life is even greater than our desire to accomplish it ourselves. Whatever it is in your family, in your career, in your life, in your future, and we say, gosh, I just want this so badly. Listen, do you know that God's desire for you is even greater? God's desire for you to live out that, that, the life that you dream of is even greater than your own desire. And yet where it begins is in getting started, is in doing it, and not listening to the people who don't have God's heart. And instead, just remembering the Lord. Because there's this passage in Psalm 20 that says that some trust in horses and others in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And just remember. But it's hard, it's difficult. I know, remember the Lord. Great and awesome, Nehemiah would say. Because some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that your word says that you're a strong tower and that the righteous can run into it and be saved. And so, Lord, our prayer and our hope is that we would see the vision that you've given us come to fruition. That even though there's opposition and challenges, we know that even greater than all of that, that we might remember you because you are great and you are awesome and you are for us. And your word says that if you're for us, who could possibly be against us? In Jesus' name, amen.